knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Thank you all very much. I am uh, more than flattered to be here, and I am more than grateful to have the opportunity to share an evening with those of you on both sides of this program, those who, who have served downrange and paid the consequences of that, those of you who are still at home and know how much we owe the veterans every day, not just on occasions when they get back at an airport in some fashion. So I think these kinds of cases are kinder, quite honestly, of the greatness of America. This is who we are across the fabric of this land. We're in the middle of a presidential campaign in which across the board, all the candidates are saying, America needs to be great again. No, America needs to come together again. It already has. And the fact of the matter is that I'm here as so many of the guests and the staff members are, not because we are here to help those veterans who have paid such a high price. We're here because we want to back and their report. Be in your presence means so much to all of us who have not paid the price that all of you have. And that is a message that must be repeated again and again across the country. Less than 1% of our population goes in the military uniform. Many of them are from working-class neighborhoods. They're from the gritty manufacturing areas of Ohio and Pennsylvania. They're from the barrios of the Southwest. They're from the Flinty Hills of New England. They're from the bucolic countryside of Virginia. And they don't hesitate to raise their hand and to be sworn into one of the branches of the United States Service and go downrange and serve often in dangerous assignments. Well, nothing, nothing is asked of the rest of us in terms of penalties and sacrifices. We're not paying more in gasoline taxes. We're not expected in any way to help people except on a voluntary basis. In fact, we're fighting a protracted war. It's going to go on for a long time. And it's the kind of war that you can't win with just conventional services as well as a lot of armament. These young men who are here tonight know what it's like to be out there in the wasteland of Afghanistan or in the dark of night in Iraq and not know where the enemy may be or something called maybe, maybe 
to not only honor, but to both of us on the side of the We're here to I'm not used to working with microphones. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Are we okay now? We got it now? He's giving this whole speech. Nothing's written down right now. He's doing this all off the cuff. On this side of the divide are getting more from this evening than those of you who have paid these prices. And that's the lesson that the country needs to remember every day. Now, having said all that, I've spent a lot of time in the war zones and a lot of time with veterans there and at Walter Reed and other places. And over the years, I've come to have such an affection for their esprit de corps, for how they just go forward. I almost never hear anyone complaining or whining. Now, one of the perfect examples is that I have a friend who was in Vietnam and lost a leg beneath the knee and got the Medal of Honor. His name is Bob Carey. He's a senator from Nebraska. Bob and I were invited to Omaha a couple of years ago to do a big benefit for Warren Buffett. And he said, got a plane. After the event, you can go where you want to go. I said, Bob, let's go to South Dakota to go pheasant hunting. God, he said, I haven't done that in a long time. So I arranged for us to go to South Dakota and see some of my friends who go pheasant hunting. Bob's a wonderful guy. He's a god-awful shot. <laughs> he didn't hit anything for three days. <laughs> Finally, on the third day, I said to one of my friends, get right behind him. And when a rooster gets up, try to fire simultaneously so it'll appear that he got the shot. <laughs> and in fact, it worked perfectly. <laughs> so we all high-fived him, got on the airplane, flew back to New York, and the next day I had to be at Walter Reed. The orthopedist there said, God, I've got a tough case. The young man, I had to take off his leg this morning below the knee. And he said he'd never talk to me again unless he gets to meet you, but he's heavily sedated. So I went in. And he, in fact, was heavily sedated. A young man from Texas grabbed his hand, and I squeezed it, and I said, I was just with a friend from Vietnam who lost a leg the same way you did. And we were in South Dakota pheasant hunting, and I couldn't keep up with him. It was true. I couldn't go over the fences as fast as he could, run through the cornrows as fast as he did. Keep going. There's another life for you out there, and you have to live it when you get out of here. And he got kind of moist and squeezed my hand again and again, and I walked out barely in control of my emotions. And the doctor said, I'm taking you to five other <laughs> And you're going to repeat that story. So I'm now drained emotionally when I get back to New York and I call Bob Carey and I say, thank you so much. You got me through a very difficult experience. And I repeated to him what I had said to that young man at Walter Reed. And there was a long pause. Bob lowered his voice and he said, you didn't tell him I couldn't hit my ass, did you? <laughs> And it's that very spirit that keeps me coming back because these are the authentic experiences in America. After all, this land, this very land, was settled by people who came to an unknown land and created the greatest democracy in the world. And they built the greatest cultural institutions in the world and built the heartbeat of civilization by making great sacrifice in wars and in life, and they did it together. They found ways to constantly move themselves forward. There is no other country in the world that has a spirit of volunteerism that America does. You can't go anywhere. You cannot go anywhere in the world and find people raising their hands for a variety of causes that they do in this country. The wealthy, the middle class, the working class, the poor, step forward when the time is right. One of the underlying themes of the book that I wrote called The Greatest Generation is that that generation paid a huge sacrifice in their lives, beginning with the Great Depression, when everything was about scarcity and sacrifice and working together and I honestly believe that that experience helped them take on the greatest threat the world has ever known to freedom, Nazi Germany. In 1938, we were the 16th military power in the world. 
Dwight Eisenhower, who by 1944 was leading the greatest invasion in the history of mankind, was a colonel. He had never seen a shot fired in anger. In 1944, the invasion was launched. The world was changed. Those men who had given up their youth to the Depression and then to the war came home, went to work, got the GI Bill, one of the genius ideas of the 20th century, and were making up for all the time that they had lost and never raising their hand and saying, you owe me. And I grew up in their shadow. I grew up in an army base first, and then I lived in projects that the Corps of Engineers were doing, so I was surrounded by them, but I'd forgotten about all their sacrifices because I was on that wave, not a baby boomer, born a little bit earlier, but I was on the wave where everything was possible for my generation. Everything was possible. College educations, good wages, good jobs. And then I went to Normandy. And when I got to Normandy the first day, I walked down Omaha Beach with two members of the Big Red One who landed in the first wave. Tiny men, a lot of people were smaller in those days. A lot of it was a result of malnutrition. And I said, tell me what you remember. One of them had to earn the Medal of Honor later. The other one lost le uh, both legs in combat. And they looked at a specific spot on the beach. And they said, we landed right there. Ramp went down. First sergeant shot through the head. And the lieutenant was shot through the head. We were 18 years old. That was our introduction to combat. We stumbled off the landing craft, got to a tank trap, and terrified, got down behind it when a colonel came loping down the beach and said to us, as if he were out for a morning run, gentlemen, there are two kinds of people on this beach, the dead and those about to be dead. You've got to move up. You've got to keep going. Turns out that colonel, Colonel Taylor, had rehearsed that line before the landing because he had landed in Italy and he saw how things can go wrong if people get paralyzed on the beach. They did go forward. And they went to a, an uplift on the beach where sappers had gone in advance of them and detonated landmines and lost their legs or were gravely wounded themselves and said, step here, step there, step there. And they got to the top and they realized that this war would be won one day at a time. And they survived. By lunch, I was so shaken, I didn't know what to do. And then I began to think about all the others that I had known over the years who had served in the war. And I came back determined to write about them. And it was an effort that did launch me into an entirely new and important part, not just of my journalistic life, but of my personal life. Because it gave me an entirely new awareness of the meaning of courage, bravery, sacrifice, and most of all, citizenship and public service, because citizenship and public service are the underlying elements that hold us all together. And they come not just during wartime, but citizenship and public service come on these occasions. You're exercising your responsibility as a citizen here tonight if you're part of Healing Waters. And you know as well that if you're one of the guests that are being honored, that you're exercising your responsibility to your country. And I am constantly in awe of that. I grew up in a really working class neighborhood. My dad wore a hard hat. He was driven out of his family at the age of 10. He was a mechanical and construction operation genius. And he gave me a good life because he married in part my mother, who was at the opposite end of the scale, a brilliant woman who graduated from high school at 16 but couldn't afford to go to college because it cost $100 a year. So I was her payoff. I had the journalism career that she wanted to have. And when I was writing about the greatest generation, I called her and I said, Mother, whatever happened to Gordon Larson? And she laughed and she said, I know the story you're thinking about. My mother was a postmistress. A postmistress in a small town is the managing editor of that town. They see and hear everything that goes on. My mother would come home at night, I'd be 10 or 11 years old, sit me down and tell me her observations about our community. And they were always astute, and they always had an added lesson attached to them. And one night she came home and she said, 
It was the day after Halloween. She said Gordon Larson was in the post office today. Gordon Larson was the most cheerful man in town. He had, after the war, uh, gotten training as a furnace technician, an air conditioning expert, and so he would come to your house to help with the furnace. He always had a pocket full of Tootsie Rolls, always had a joke. He would take in young Indian orphans and raise them in his own household because as a Marine, he always felt we don't leave anybody behind. And on that morning after Halloween, my mother was listening to Gordon, and for one of the few times in his life, he was kind of complaining. He said, those high school kids last night were kind of out of control. He said, you know, they knew I was giving away a lot of Tootsie Rolls. They kept coming back. I got a little aggravated with him. Mother said, oh, come on, Gordon. What were you doing when you were 17? And he looked at her and he said, I was landing on Guadalcanal. And he walked out. So I remembered that. And I called her and I said, where is Gordon Larson? And she said, I think he's in Idaho working on a dam. So I called and left a number for him to call me. Gordon called. We hadn't talked to each other in 25 years. And I said, Gordon, I'm working on a book about World War II. And I remember that story of you landing on Guadalcanal when you were 17. You told it to my mother. She told it to me. Long pause. And he said, I've never talked about this, ever. I watched my brother die in the beaches of Bougainville. A sniper had shot him. We couldn't rescue him because we were all under fire. I left home a wild kid. I came home completely changed. Then there was this long pause on the phone call. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. I said, Gordon, are you okay? And he said, yeah, but I just realized I'm paying for this phone call. I said, give me your number, hang up, and I'll call you back. <laughs> that, too, was that generation. <laughs> they knew value, and they were not intimidated by anything. So the lessons that I learned from them have carried me forward. And this generation, going off to Afghanistan and to Iraq, are really the next greatest generation, because they come home and when they go to colleges, as I know from personal experience and from talking to the college presidents, they lift the campus in a way that is awesome to all the professional college administrators. Every campus in America now would like to have veterans of this war on their campus because of their discipline, and their ambition, and they're mission-oriented. That's who they are. And every veteran that I know, including those in this room, always say the same thing. Sir, I'd like to get back with my unit, if I could possibly. They were formed at an early and important stage in their lives, and they know what their obligations are. And so their gift is to us in a way that we need to appreciate every day. And that's the test of our generation as we go forward, as I know that we will, because of the resilience and the inherent financial, political, and legal strengths of this country. What we need to do is work very hard at finding ways to advance the American dream for everyone. And I know that we can do that. Now, I want to say a word about my dear friend Lefty Craig, who's here tonight. Over the years, I've met a lot of heroes. I was talking recently after the Ken Burns documentary ran about meeting Jackie Robinson for the first time. I had grown up with Jackie Robinson in distant South Dakota. My father and grandfather said to me when he was signed by the Dodgers, the Dodgers have done something very important. We're gonna be for the Dodgers. I was the only one in South Dakota who was a Dodger fan. Everybody else was a Cardinal fan or those damn Yankee fans, so I had to put up with them. Anyhow, I met him finally. And I was waiting to do an interview with Nelson Rockefeller. He was close to Nelson Rockefeller. It was a big deal in California, and I had the most important political interview program. And he came in behind Rockefeller, and I was like a babbling schoolboy going over there to meet him. So over the years, I've met all the sports heroes and other heroes that I want to meet in life. 
Ted Williams, for example, Michael Jordan, I got to be quite close at one time. I had dinner for the second year in a row at the Hall of Fame this past year with Sandy Koufax and Joe Torrey and, and Bob Gibson. These are the rewards of a life that you have when you have some visibility and you're shameless about meeting the people that you want to meet. <laughs> I was shameless about this man, Lefty Craig. I wanted to meet him. I'd read about him. I'd watched all of his casting tips. I'd gotten to know from other people exactly who he was. And then I did get to meet him. And we were in a boat the first time that we were there together in uh, a place called Deepwater Key. And of course, all the guides were aware that Lefty Cray was there. So we go out in the boat and we have a mixed morning and we break for lunch. And the guides immediately get up on the bow of the boat and start throwing, gonna show off the Lefty Cray. I don't know how many of you have heard him speak, but he has this kind of wonderful, engaging, verbal thing in which he says something and he says, <clears throat> right after he says it. <laughs> so I said, Lefty, that guy's pretty good. And Lefty said, yeah, but <clears throat> he's dumb. <laughs> this big guy turns around and says, what did you just say? I just said, you're pretty good, but <clears throat> you're dumb. <laughs> and he gave him a little tip and was in Five minutes, the guy was throwing 25 feet further. The other guy gets up, and Lefty does the same thing. Yeah, he's pretty good, but he's dumb as well, so we, we fixed his. What I knew was that Lefty had been in World War II. I knew it had been a big war. It was with the 69th Italian, they went across Northern Europe. They ended up in the Battle of the Bulge. Two years ago, I was the presidential envoy of the 70th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge, and I went out into the Ardennes Forest on a snowy, cold day. And some of the original foxholes are still there. The Americans were outnumbered 200,000 to 80,000. Germany threw everything they had at us at that point. It was Hitler's last gasp. The weather was so bad that the trees, in effect, became shrapnel. Lefty was a forward observer. He was way out on the front. And as much as anything, he said he worried about those frozen trees becoming shrapnel. And he woke up every morning with a big icicle pancake on his fanny. But he got through it. And he went to the Elba, met the Russians, and he came home. And I said, do you want to tell me any kind of harrowing World War II stories? He said, no, but I've been waiting to tell you my favorite story for a long time. He said, we had two good old boys in our outfit. They were junior high dropouts. They were very close friends. They could run through the night, shoot the eyes of a running rabbit. And we were pretty nervous. We had our rucks in place. We were going into the Battle of the Bulge the next day. And one of them said to the other one, did you get yourself any of that life insurance we're supposed to get? The other good old boy said, I did. I got me $5,000 worth of life insurance. How much did you get? And the other good old boy said, I got me $10,000 worth of life insurance. The $5,000 guy said, now why would you get $10,000 worth of life insurance? You're not going to be around to enjoy it. <laughs> and the $10,000 guy said, dummy, stop and think about it. Who are they going to put on the front lines? The guy they have to pay $5,000 to or the guy they have to pay $10,000 <laughs> You're in the presence of an American icon. I don't use that term lightly. An American legend. Not just as the greatest fly fisherman of our time, but also as one of the great citizens. Grew up very poor in Maryland, dedicated his life to the outdoors and to teaching people everything. Not just about fly fishing. He'll tell you how to lace up your boots, by the way, if you give him a chance. <laughs> and within about four minutes, when he came to the ranch in Montana, he and my youngest daughter, who just had her first child, had so bonded that by the end of the day, he was the honorary godfather of that first child. <laughs> so I'm here to tell you that a lot of you come up to me and say you've been listening to me for a long time and that you've been very complimentary. The honor is mine. The honor is mine to have the opportunity that I've had to cover the big stories around the world, try to get them right, 
try to keep journalism on an even course, try to celebrate the goodness of this country and the greatness that is yet to come, because I honestly believe that, and to be in the presence of Americans who every day wake up and think about what they can do for their fellow citizens. So congratulations to all of you and to the veterans who are here in ways that we can never adequately express. We're enthralled by sharing this country with you, sharing this evening with you. And we will go home and say to our friends and neighbors, I was in the presence of greatness last night. Thank you all very much. Steve, where are you? Oh, it's coming up. And <clears throat> that's very nice. These are the Patriot Flies, the Brown Flies, and the Patriot Streamer, and our challenge coin. And we'd like you to take this back and put it on your office wall and enjoy. I could have used these two guys and this guy as the lead. To use your words, I was a little low-grade nervous about putting this one together. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks you. all of you. Thanks very much. Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, uh, friends, family. Uh, my mother flew out from Las Vegas, Colorado. It's the first time that she's ever actually had the opportunity to see me fly fish and, and meet my family. Uh, and when I say my family, it, it means the people that are in this room. Uh, Bo. Uh, Bo's been... Uh, great brother to me, uh, Mr. Rick Pope, who's the godfather and Lefty Cray of my my son, and Jane Gibbs, who's the godmother of my child. Um, the whole TFO family. Uh, I mean, I, I can mention a bunch of people in here. I've got three bearded brothers. I have a GQ brother who's uh, Miss Corey, oh, Mr. Corey Ruth. Um, I call him GQ just because he looks like a GQ magazine that just walked out. Um, but I call him my family because um, my father passed away when I was 10 and my, 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 or, uh, my, my grandparents um, passed away when, uh, about five years ago and um, my family's all on the West Coast and I spent 14 years in the Marine Corps. And what's in this tent right here has become my family. And it's pretty amazing. But you've all read my bio, a lot of people. Uh, you've seen the videos through Able Women. And what you've seen four years ago is not the person that is standing before you today. Um, through all my injuries and through the stroke and everything else, it's not the medication, and it's not, it's not the doctors. Doctors, I want to say, are bad, especially the wizard. Um, but it's fly fishing, and it's not about the fishing. It's about the people, and it's about the environment, and it's about the family that has actually healed me. Um, so there's... I know I got five minutes, wherever David is. So, um, there's, there's six important life-changing events that I want to talk about uh, through Project Healing Waters that have touched my life that I want to share with you tonight. That some things I've never shared with anything, anybody else except for 
my brother Bo. But I think it's important because it's going to change people's lives and I think it's going to save lives. And I'm at that point in my life and my recovery because of Bo that I can do that. And I think I'm strong enough to be able to talk about it. Um, and I'm going to throw some jokes in there because I'm a Marine. And excuse my language, sir. Lefty said I can throw some language in there, so. Um, so the first one, my first meeting. Uh, after uh, Bethesda, I move into Belvoir, and my first meeting, I show up, and I meet Marty, who's standing tall like a Marine, shirt tucked in, high tight, you know, and I'm like, that's definitely a Sergeant Major in the Marine Corps, and I look to my right, and you see Mr. Bob, and I'm like, is he a civilian, or is he in the Air Force? Sorry, Air Force. Come on. And then I look over to my right. There's no women there. It's just me. And I look over, and Cheyenne's like sniffing shit out. And I look over to my right, and all I see is a bunch of men playing with fur and feathers with some instrumental thing. And I'm thinking, what the hell is going on? I thought I was here for fly fishing, right? And uh, next thing I know, they're like, yeah, we're tying flies tonight, but it's really complicated, um, but you'll figure it out. So I sit down, and to this day, Mr. Clem, I don't know if he's here tonight, but we tied the most complicated fly that you could ever tie in your life. And they said, if you can tie this, you'll be able to tie for the rest of your life. I still have that fly today. I wish I would have brought it today. It looks like a drag queen. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's actually on the video, I think, uh, for, for able women. And uh, just, just has seen it. The thing looks like a freaking drag queen. And, um, but I actually learned how to tie flies for six months before I ever picked up a fly rod. And uh, um, Bob would bring in magazines and articles and, and all sorts of stuff to learn about the water and everything. So I finally get to pick up a fly rod. And the first thing I caught was an exit sign in Fort Belvoir. <laughs> I was like... But, um, but the next blessing I, I had was meeting Kurt and Keith. Um, I was at a very, I guess, difficult stage um, going through the military and everything, and uh, I've had uh, six TBIs and a skull fracture, and um, Kurt, Kurt said, there's an amazing program in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's traumatic brain injuries and stroke stroke rehabilitation. It's called the Shepherd Center. And I've got a I've got a I've got a person I want you to meet. His name's Keith. And uh, him and I hit it off right away. If if you ever wonder who the two people are standing out on the side all the time, not mingling with everybody, that, that's Keith and I. We're not two Marines trying to like attack you guys or anything. We're just chilling. He's an army guy, so He's trying to be a Marine. He, did, he, he joined the Marine Corps League. So he's, he's trying to integrate with us. Um, but uh, Kurt, Kurt helped me get into the Shepherd Center. And I spent six months down there. And they, they helped find out exactly what was wrong with me. Um, they went from head to toe, uh, neurologically, um, GI, everything else. And we're able to help. I got these new hearing aids, just like Lefty, and they're. I'm not. I joined the Marine Corps because there's no technology needed, and. Uh... All I need is a weapon and the enemy. Um, but because of them, I actually caught, and still today, I caught the largest 
trout fish. And Keith was my guide. And he's actually fishing in this tournament uh, this weekend. As, and he, he, now he's an enemy because he's going against me. But uh, I caught a 26-inch trout. And... Uh, But uh, Keith's been a great man, and I can't thank Kurt enough for everything he's done for me. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's, I mean, he saved my life for, for being able to change my life around. And that was all because of Project Healing Waters. If I would have never met him or talked to him on that river up in West Virginia during Harmon's, you know, would I be standing here today? You know, we just don't know. I, I, I don't know. It, it, was, it was pretty amazing. Um, but after Harmon's, I was uh, in the program for a year. And I said, you know what? I think I'm well enough. I want to be a volunteer. And everyone looked at me kind of funny. They're like, you're, you're still going through a lot of treatment. Um, I started teaching people how to tie flies. And a year after I was in the program, I uh, taught my first wounded warrior. Uh, I was a guide for the first time with the help of Jane. And uh, then I started fundraising. And um, after that, I said, I don't need to be a participant. I'm gonna be a full-time volunteer, that's my job. Um, at this time, Marine Stubborn, I'm still trying to fight my way back in the Marine Corps. And when they told me that there's no way that I can still be a, a Marine and I have to retire, uh, that hit me pretty hard. Um, and... Uh, Jane, who was my first guide ever, who taught me how to fly fish, she volunteered to take care of me and be my caregiver. And I could never thank her enough for everything that she's done for me. Um, she allowed me to come into her house and take care of me and help me count my medication and be there for me Why my nurse came to the house and everything else but one of the hardest days of my life was when I had to go to Quantico and sign those papers after 14 years of service and they said thank you for your service and you need to sign this paper because you can no longer serve and that's it and you just walk out the door. I sat in my truck for about an hour until Jane started beating me. And she said, you need to come home. And if it wasn't for her, I'm not sure what I would have done that day. And, um... The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. I finally drove down 95 and came home. When I came home, it was her, Julie, and Dougie. And they had these big old freaking grins on their face and making jokes and talking about, we're going fishing tomorrow. We're going to the pond. We're going to King George. And I'm thinking, what? I just had the worst day of my goddamn life. What the hell's going on? And they're like, we're going fishing. That's going to make you happy. We woke up the next day, and we went fishing. And guess who else showed up? My big brother, Bo. 
and all four of us and Rod, who I don't know, he's probably in Egypt by now. I don't know where the hell he. Where's but Where's Rod? I don't know. See, he's a secret secret squirrel mission dude. From, if anyone knows Rod, you know. Okay, he's a secret squirrel guy. But instead of me being out by myself and not knowing what to do, they all showed up and we went fishing for the day. And we caught bluegill and I caught a tree or two and maybe Cheyenne. And, but they saved my life that day, literally saved my life. And I, I, I can't thank Jane enough for everything that that woman has done for me. And she has a full-time job. She's a bomb tech for the State Virginia Police Department. And I don't know how many years she's got on, but she's got too many. And she's actually working this weekend and took the time off to come down here. And she's got to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning to go back to work tomorrow. So... But, okay, so next. <sighs> Shit, they're gonna, he's gonna kick me in. All right, last thing, my family. Um, so, th- four years of treatment, my analogy. This is what I got. I gotta read it because I think it's kind of funny. So, doesn't matter how many times you lose a fly or get your line snagged or knotted, they're always there to re rig and get you out of there. I call it the assist and recovery of your fly line. If you happen to break a rod because the tarpon was too big on your five weight, because, you, because it's, all the, it's, because it's the only rod you had, you didn't have the 12 weight, you only had the five weight. First person to show up by your side and support and help are the same ones who put that rod in your hand. The only difference now is that they're going to help you build a new rod and a better rod that's made to catch that tarpon. And that's the way I believe this program is. They're there to help you recover and to help build you back up. I've never been alone. And there's one thing that I'm gonna open up about. It's very personal. And because of Bo, I've become a better person. And it's, it's gonna help my son and my, my spouse, but it's gonna help a lot of women. Um, but it's gonna help me. It's something that I've held in for four years. Uh, But besides all the combat stuff, no one knows this about me. Um, When I got back from combat, I I was the first person to deploy in an infantry battalion in the Marine Corps. Two months later, I was gang raped when I got back. And I've, I've struggled with this for four, four years. And um, I never discussed it with anyone until Bo came to Jane's house about uh, six months ago. And we opened up about it. And uh, I told them that the reason I'm doing it is I think it's gonna help save a lot of lives. Because I know that I'm not the only one out there struggling with it. 
whether male or female. And uh, two months ago, I started therapy. And because of that man right there, I think he saved my life. Because I feel like I just had the whole world lifted off my shoulders. So these people in here, are my family, they're my life. And I'm standing up here today, and the most important thing that you guys need to know is that I sit here and stand, and I represent every single Project Healing Waters member in the United States. I'm not here representing myself. I represent every single member throughout the United States. That's why I opened up about my life and the six major things that are very important events in my life. Because there's members throughout the whole entire U.S. that have the same experiences. So this program, this program is freaking amazing. It's like a wildfire, and it just gets under you. I mean, my mom's never even, she just learned how to fly fish today, and she's out there freaking casting. Freaking Snowball, his name's Snow White, but Snowball or Snowflake, however you want to call him, he thought, sorry, he thought my mom's been fly fishing for three years. She just picked up a fly rod a day. But, I mean, you can change a life like that. This program is amazing. Okay, now you guys are all, I need to come up with a joke or something. Okay, no, sorry, but I'm done. I'm done. attended the first annual two-fly tournament, and I'd like to call up uh, Sergeant Retired J.R. Sauslin. With the, uh, he was with the Army National Guard out of Wisconsin. Next will be uh, Staff Sergeant Retired Robert Bartlett, U.S. Army. He is also a first annual two-flag guy. Next from the uh, second annual two fly is Captain Rob Burke, U.S. Army. Captain Burke! There he is. Rob is still in the National Guard, and he is a state trooper up in New York. Yeah. Next. Interstate 81. All right, next is our third annual two-fly participants. Uh, Tech Sergeant Sean Meadows, U.S. Air Force retired.
He's actually one of the cool Air Force guys. It's audio. All right, next is from the third annual two flight is Sergeant First Class Retired Brian Mancini, U.S. Army. Next is our fourth annual two fly, um, Sergeant Retired Keith Gilbert, U.S. Army. to fly is uh, Tech Sergeant Chris Frost, U.S. Air Force. Frosty! He's also a cool Air Force guy. He was EOD. And he raises some fantastic bees that make some great honey. From the uh, sixth annual to fly, um, Sergeant Larry Fivecoats, U.S. Army retired. one of our Colorado programs. And Larry's an example of uh, one of our Vietnam vets in our program, and I think that's a big thing about Project Healing Water is that we're not... Yeah. We're not just a post-9-11 organization. We serve pre-9-11, including our Vietnam vets. Uh, next is the uh, sixth annual to fly again. Uh, Staff Sergeant Ro uh, George Draper, U.S. Army, retired from Maine. And he's another example of a, a participant who's turned into a volunteer. He's been uh, volunteering as our regional coordinator for New England region. He's been doing a great job. All right, moving on to the seventh annual two fly. I'd like to have Staff Sergeant Rhonda Burleson, U.S. Army retired from North Carolina. Help me, Rhonda. All right, maybe. Right, take the picture. Get your picture. All right. Next, eighth annual two fly, Captain Kimberly Smith, United States Marine Corps. Representing the ninth annual two fly from last year is Captain Alvin Shell, U.S. Army retired from Virginia. All right, so a picture, picture. You get a picture? Got it. All right, cool. All right. <laughs> So in addition to having the 12 um, participants who come back and compete in the pro-vet teams, uh, we also have the uh, sponsor teams that compete tomorrow. And the cool thing is that a lot of the sponsors will purchase a spot to play in the team, but they're like, hey, I don't want to fish, you know, I want to fish with a veteran, so I want you to put in a uh, participant from Project Killing Water. So 
Um, we, and we have others who come back and pay their own way to, to, to uh, fish, and we have um, one who's guiding tomorrow also. Um, so I want to recognize those individuals. Um, so like Mike Rodriguez, he's fishing tomorrow on the Pay Two Man Team. Uh, Wes Hodges is uh, guiding. Uh, Luis Aguero from our Walter Reed program. Uh, Josh Williams, one of the first, among the first participants in Project Inner Waters. Uh, Ed Lachance. And last but not least, Captain Avon Forsyth. Yeah, he'll be fishing tomorrow. Not catching much, but he'll be fishing. There you go. Thanks, uh, love you, brother. It's true, I do. And he's a ranger also, in case y'all didn't know. Rangers lead the way. Airborne. Okay, here we are, folks. I know it's been a long night, uh, it's, but it's been a fantastic night. But it's getting that time to get home and get some rest. So what we need to do right now is uh, conduct a drawing for the rod from the Long Beach program. It's an incredible rod. Uh, just to give you an idea about this rod, um, the rod was built, it was a combination of four individuals. I believe two of them were veterans. Um, the wrap itself on this rod took over 50 hours of work. It's very intricate. Um, one was a Vietnam veteran, and, and one of the comments that I remember from the gentleman, the veteran who built the rod was that sometimes it pains him. He gets physical pain building the rod, but he loves it so much that he said he'll take that pain and build those rods till the day he dies. And he's out of Long Beach Project Healing Waters program. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and uh, pull a card. Now the card, there are two decks. There's a blue deck and a red deck. Am I going to do it? That's a lot of pressure, boss. Should I look at you too? Should, should we should you look gazingly and such? Okay, here we go. Oh, you got it. Well, you should have told me that. So I was looking at you and I didn't see you pull it. This is how it's been for 11 years, folks. Who's got a red back card in their possession? Okay, we're getting close. One out of two. What? Bill Johnson, Bill, are you here? Okay, so you've got all those tickets, you've got to look through all those tickets? Okay. How many people like numbers greater than eight? Yeah. How many people like uh, hearts? Yeah, yeah. You like hearts? Yeah. Greater than eight? No. No, okay. How about a number between four and seven? Yeah. Are we we're getting there? Okay, we're going to count down. Four, five, six, seven of hearts red. They took a deck of cards and they tore half off and put the other half in. I'm signing off for the night with that. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Oh. <laughs>
Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Spend your Saturdays with Life on the Water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. (laughs) Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. (laughs) The destination for outdoor entertainment. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.